Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Is it possible to work within the system to change the system? I'm Jamil Smith, and I write for Vox about identity, culture, and civil rights. And I'm your host for Vox Conversations. I used to live in Philadelphia, went to college there, then returned years later. It's in a county where, politically speaking, the blue is drowning the red. Democrats outnumber Republican voters by three to one. Still, it was noteworthy when Larry Krasner, perhaps the most famous of all the progressive prosecutors elected in recent years, all but ensured his re-election when he won the Democratic primary this past May. Krasner was first elected to the office of district attorney in 2017, And this most recent victory sent a strong signal that Philadelphia voters want his reformist work to continue. Voters overwhelmingly, by 30 percentage points, rejected the tough-on-crime narrative of his opponent, Carlos Vega. Still, how long will that hold? Krasner is a former civil rights attorney who sued the Philadelphia Police Department 75 times during his 31-year career. He's been outspoken in his claims that law enforcement is systematically racist, his words. Now, he's trying to change that system from within. He's drawn attention for populating his office with criminologists and data scientists, for his efforts to end cash bail and reform the probation system, and to reduce rates of incarceration, particularly among juveniles. His crusade was recently the subject of a PBS documentary miniseries called Philly DA. But when the goal is remaking something like Philadelphia's legal system, how much can one person do? So, Larry, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate it. I'm uh, delighted to be here. It's great to talk to you, Jamil. What does a district attorney do, specifically in Philadelphia? And I wonder if people really understand the powers of the job. Sure. So a district attorney is a chief local prosecutor. District attorney signifies you're not federal. You are at the state or county level. Most district attorneys cover a jurisdiction that is a county. And what you are doing is you're making decisions about whom to charge, what you should charge them with, and what you're going to do with that case. Are you going to seek a conviction and a sentence of incarceration or maybe even the death penalty? Or are you going to be seeking some sort of accountability that does not result in a conviction and that uh, may result in a rehabilitative result and the case being completely eradicated from any kind of public records. Hmm. But there's also a larger level because the decisions that a prosecutor makes have a profound effect on mass incarceration and a profound effect on how we spend our money. 
uh, and whether we're going to invest in, you know, in prevention as opposed to investing in incarceration. So in a sense, the chief prosecutor, every day they're in court, is not only representing people who have a direct interest in the case, but you're representing people who will never even hear of that case, but whose lives are profoundly affected by it. You've won your primary against Carlos Vega by 30 points. How has your victory resonated throughout the city? I mean, and how does it resonate with you? So the actual outcome was that we we took 66.7% of the vote. Carlos took, uh, you know, 33. We literally had more than two out of every three votes mm-hmm. in the city, you know, and the entire setup coming from institutional politicians, institutional media was that during this moment of terrible levels of gun violence, this was going to be the last stand for progressive prosecutors here and elsewhere. No election was more scrutinized this particular year than Philadelphia, but the result was a resounding win for progressive prosecution and a resounding loss and a well-funded loss for people who would like to take us back to an old philosophy of mass incarceration. It has had a tremendous effect in Philadelphia because the institutions that did not want to admit that there is a legitimate grassroots movement for change now have to admit it. But it also has its national impact because in just the same way that Kim Fox's victory two years ago in Chicago, George Gascon's victory last year, even Marilyn Mosby's reelection in Baltimore a couple of years ago, in the same way that all of those showed where the people were, this shows that. It shows that the people are way ahead of their elected officials and their institutions, and they want real criminal justice reform. In some respects, I think that there's just this culture of fear that some people, I guess, you know, it could be, say, police unions or other political interests, have vested interests in promoting. Yes, there was rising gun violence in Philadelphia last year, along with a lot of other cities. But there's people who are invested in blaming it on progressives, you know, wherever they sit, whether it be the DA's office, City Hall or what have you. Oh, I think that's absolutely right. It's, you know, it's the gift from Richard Nixon that just keeps on giving. Just steady politics of fear. You know, its best buddy is uh, an irrational and unscientific approach to criminal justice. And its worst enemy is a rational and scientific approach to criminal justice. It's gotten us to a very bad place. And the media wrapped themselves around it a very long time ago. At least the mainstream media developed a symbiotic relationship where um, a politics of fear was also, you know, a newspaper selling, a clickbaiting journalism of fear and talking about terrible individual cases while completely ignoring the larger realities of what was going on in the system. I mean, just last year, just let's look at last year. For example, we did have a historically terrible year in terms of gun violence, but crime across the country during the pandemic went down slightly. And even the category of violent crime, a category that includes gun violence, but also includes things like rape and gunpoint robbery and assaults without a weapon, violent crime went down last year across the country. So what we actually saw last year was not some form of lawlessness, which was a favorite phrase of Trump during his you know big city bashing effort at re-election. We didn't see lawlessness. We didn't even see an increase in violent crime. What we saw was this massive surge in, uh, in gun violence, a, a surge so massive that across the country in the 50 largest cities, the average increase was 42%. The increase in Philly was actually slightly less. It was 40%. But 
only coming out of this culture where we don't want to be scientific and we don't want to be rational. It was completely decontextualized to act as if all crime was going up. It wasn't to act as if it was only happening in Philly. It wasn't to act as if it was only happening in cities where you had progressive prosecutors. None of that was true. It is a unique and fascinating double standard. It works like this. If crime is going up generally or a specific type of crime is going up generally, then a traditional prosecutor gets to say, hang them high, (laughs) give them longer sentences. That's the only answer here. Never mind. They've been saying it for 10 years and it hasn't had any positive effects. But they say that the crowd cheers. You know, we all thump our chests and feel good about that. When you have a progressive prosecutor come in and crime is going up, the answer is, oh, my God, I can't believe you haven't eliminated crime. If there's any crime. And you're a progressive prosecutor, even if violent crime generally is going down. If there's any crime, let's say a surge in gun violence that's obviously national, then it's all your fault, progressive prosecutor. The really good news in Philly is that the voters knew better than that. You know, the we talk about yeah. winning by two-thirds, but here is in many ways the more interesting piece of data is if you look at the neighborhoods the most affected by gun violence, the most affected by violent crime which are poor neighborhoods and black and brown neighborhoods in Philadelphia, we were taking about 80% in those areas. Yeah, And these are areas where you, you have a lot of families who will have someone doing hard time. You'll have someone else in the family who is a, a police officer, someone else who's been a victim of really serious crime. These are families that see it in three dimensions and 80% were on the side of change. That's where we are yeah. in this country. And I know those neighborhoods. I mean, I went to college in one And then I also came back later to Philadelphia to live in another. So I understand the urgency for those people to feel seen, to feel respected. And on the other side, of course, again, this culture of fear where people are saying, like, it's best to try to lock away our problems. And of course, Philadelphia has this reputation that was built, I guess you could say, under Frank Rizzo, that I guess it's the most incarcerated city, essentially, in terms of like percentage of incarceration per capita. And so I just think that a vote for you seems to be for them, I would think, inoffensive, you know, against that sort of philosophy that has not only imprisoned a lot of their neighbors and family and friends, but also uh, has them consistently living in a culture of fear without actual solutions. You know, I think that's absolutely right. But one thing the left doesn't really talk about is that when you go into those same neighborhoods and you talk to women who have lost their sons, it's almost always sons, to gun violence. You know, in Philly, they were only solving 20% of shootings before the pandemic. And that low rate of solving cases went down. They were only solving, you know, something like 40%, 40 to 50% of homicides. And that rate went down. These are lousy levels of solving cases that we're seeing in those areas. And that is something that is felt just as dearly by people living on a particular block as the unjust incarceration of an individual who was either innocent or was guilty of something but got far too much time in a system that was unfair you know, and did not afford a proper trial or a fair outcome. The problem is quite deep. There are a lot of people in poor black and brown neighborhoods who feel unsafe, unsafe from gun crime, but also unsafe from what police and prosecutors have been doing to them for decades. And they're right. They're right on both fronts. Philadelphia being the most incarcerated big city in America, I know that you've run against the carceral state, but I understand that the number of people jailed in Philadelphia have increased by 30 percent just in the last year. 
Can you offer an explanation for that that doesn't have to do with your performance or is it just something that have to do with the pandemic? What exactly is behind that? So, you know, this is a city where not so many years ago there were 15,000 people in county custody. By the time I took office, there had been some good efforts to reduce it. When I took office in 2018, January of 2018, we had 6,500. That number was down to about 4,800 before the pandemic hit. We brought about the largest reduction in county custody in that first year or so we were in office that had been seen in essentially any prior year in the city. Mm -hmm. And you should know that the level of 6,500 had been stagnant for about a year before that. So that was a pretty big achievement. The pandemic hits and we and other criminal justice partners, including the public defender's office, we make very concerted effort to reduce the jail population even further so it won't become a super spreader and it never did. And we got those levels down to 3,800, which was the lowest level of incarceration in Philly since 1985. I started as an attorney in 1987. It was lower than had existed at, at any point in my, at that point, 31 year career. Right. Right. But, you know, we were up against a, a pretty big challenge too, which is the, that the courts closed. We do not determine who is in jail or who is not in jail. Certainly we make recommendations about what bail should be. We have a cash bail system in Philly. That's awful. So we make recommendations. We have no control over whether judges impose a detainer or not. A detainer, of course, is a, it's, it's a legal hold on someone to stay in custody because they violate a probation and parole. Sometimes it's silly. You know, some, somebody smoked weed and you got them sitting in jail on a detainer. And we, of course, would be opposed to that. But sometimes it's serious. And what we experienced over the next 15 months, because the court shut down in March of last year, is that the kinds of cases, because arrests were continuing, but cases were not being disposed, the kinds of cases that were coming in, even with reduced levels of arrest, were on a whole more serious cases. All of these shootings, this you know enormous increase in gun violence was being reflected in an increase in arrests of people for shooting other people. You know, there were other serious matters as well. So even though we got down to this unprecedented low, I shouldn't say unprecedented, but lowest since 85, we started to mm -hmm. see it climbing back up because even though we were trying to do with the defenders, public defenders, what we could, the inability to try cases, the inability to have the trial date approaching, be pressured to resolve cases, even the correctional system's refusal to move inmates from the county system where they mostly await trial to the state system where some of them serve a sentence for a more serious case. They wouldn't even move those people. Resulted in an increase in the number of people in jail. It was 30% in the context of a system that used to have 15,000 people in it where we had reached a low that was uh, the lowest in more than 30 years. It's 30% up from that. It was basically from around 3,800 to about, you know, something like 4,500, something along those lines. I know that you had said that you would try to, I guess, simulate a uh, no cash bail system. Can you describe what you were trying to do and and how effective you think it's been? Sure. So what we early in our administration was kind of a phase one. We found a, a lot of low level offenses, about twenty five of them, where as an office wide policy, with very few exceptions, we would never seek money. That was constructive and positive. It resulted in fewer poor people being stuck in jail for minor offenses, nonviolent offenses. Pandemic hits. Now we have this double crisis. We're not just talking about public safety. We're also now talking about a fatal disease that can affect people in custody, but it, it can also affect everyone who comes in and out 
you know, prison psychologists, you're talking about social workers, you're talking about correctional officers, and every, you know, elderly relative they have at home. You know, under those circumstances, we decided the most we could do under Pennsylvania law was to ask on the one hand for no cash at all, and on the other hand for a large amount of cash. That large amount was actually $1 less than a million, and it was $1 less than a million for a specialized reason, which is that within the county correctional facilities, there was a rule that if it was a million dollars, you had to be held in this very secure way that made it hard to socially distance people, right? That's how we got to that number. The number was the highest number that we could seek, the best simulation of a hold without bail that we could get that would not mm-hmm. also tie the hands of the person in charge with, of the jail. It both succeeded tremendously and failed tremendously. The success came at the level of further reducing the low bails. And it became a part two to our earlier success in getting rid of those kind of really low bails, a thousand dollars bail, you know, a hundred dollars bail, two thousand dollars bail. We got rid of a lot of that. You know, my position is and was that cash bail doesn't work. At the one end, it incarcerates poor people for dumb stuff. And at the other end, it lets out people with resources for really serious things. That was what we tried to do. I will tell you it is it is one of the policies that we brought that has been controversial. It's one of the policies we brought where we don't feel like it was a smashing success. It has been a source of a lot of frustration, both inside and outside the office. I would love to get rid of cash bail. I think it's an awful system. I think if you're so dangerous that you should not be on the street while you're awaiting trial, then like in DC and New Jersey and in Kentucky and now Illinois, then you should be held. And it doesn't matter if you're rich, you should just be held. But I also think whether you're broke or you're middle class, or you're rich, if the matter is not serious, you don't pose a serious danger to the community, then I don't really care if it's your fifth retail theft for food. You should be out. And what we have happening under cash bail is that poor people cannot pay a low bail and get out. So they sit in jail with all the negative consequences that come from that, right? I would love to see the elimination of cash bail in Pennsylvania, but but I can't change the law. It's going to take the Pennsylvania legislature to do what Washington, D.C. did 30-some years ago and say, yo, judges, you cannot use money. Money has nothing to do with this. They're either so dangerous they stay in or they're not so dangerous and they get out and money's not a part of it. Let's take a quick break. But when we're back, there's been a noted uptick in gun violence and other violent crimes in 2021. But what's really behind this rise? And what can be done about it without exacerbating the problems Larry Krasner is trying to solve? I'll ask him after the break. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. 
Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Burrow.com slash box. I used to live right there by Lorenzo's Pizza uh, up on South Street. And when I heard it burned down, I was actually alarmed i wanted to like go grab a bucket of water and go across the country and i'll put it out uh that's how good that pizza is yeah but i yeah i'm I'm relieved to hear that it's uh that it's opening back up how is the city doing uh, as things open back up it's kind of a mixed bag i mean people are really excited to be out restaurants are open i would say in general there's a lot of pent-up energy and for people who had money uh they've been salting it away for people who didn't have money and we're making, you know, 40000 or less. They've been obliterated financially. I mean, certainly some of the federal efforts have helped, but it's been tough. And in my mind, that is exactly why we've seen the spike of gun violence all over the country. What we've actually seen is this whole layer of protection, you know, especially for young people, because it's mostly young people killing young people with guns, high school classrooms and summer camps and job programs and public pools yeah. and rec centers. All of that stuff's been stripped away. And we've seen that terrible consequence. The gun violence goes on, but in many other ways, the city is, is coming back and it's doing well. Gun violence, of course, has been one of the main topics, I guess, of conversation for anyone's talking jurisprudence throughout the country. What do you feel like are the best solutions to this and what's standing in the way of those solutions? Well, you know, we have a really interesting crew here that never existed in this DA's office before, headed by a criminologist and some data people who are able to do things like geomap. And when they geomap, this is what you see. The map of poverty is the map of unemployment, is the map of educational low achievement, is the map of mass incarceration, is the map of violent crime. It's all the same map. And Philadelphia is the poorest of the 10 largest cities. So I think maybe more than some other cities, we very directly see the connection. The biggest solutions are preventative. They avoid the harm in the first place. And the secondary solutions are, you know, the surgery. It's the prosecution after the arrest because the blood is already on the ground and someone has been killed. There's no question that prevention is where the biggest investment should be. And that's not where we've been as a country or as a city. Where we've been was, you know, pass idiotic laws that made us the most incarcerated country in the world and then build idiotic prisons and jails all over the country and just fill them up. Uh, And by the way, don't fill them up with everybody. Make sure you fill them up with people born into poverty and, and disproportionately with black and brown people, overwhelmingly with men. Let's just let's just fill it up because that's a real good solution when you're trying to have the formation of families, when you're trying to have intact families. That's a real good solution when you're trying to make people employable to give them all kinds of convictions so no one will employ them. But that's what we've been doing. You know, some of what we're seeing now is unique to a pandemic. We have never had a situation during my career, where the Philly courts were closed more than four or five days because of snow. We have had the Philly courts essentially closed for 15 months. 15 months. They're only now beginning to open up. And various sort of anomalous 
things relate to that. In the same way, we've had this anomaly of mass shootings around the country, this anomaly of people with eating disorders going into medical treatment at five times the level that we used to at the same, in the same way that we've seen this huge spike in suicidal thinking among teenagers. We are seeing things going on with gun violence that are unprecedented. So I don't think we should read too much into the moment, but you know, how can we improve things? Well, first of all, once we get the courts running again, we can do the kind of things that we did before that resulted in a 50% reduction in future years of incarceration. We literally cut in half the future years of incarceration coming out of the Philadelphia court system. So we can get back to a lot of those policies, which we're making good headway. Uh, we can get back to policies of not prosecuting people for sex work, not prosecuting people for possession of marijuana. That list can get longer. We can work on the, the vast enhancement of diversion. In other words, accountability that does not include a conviction because the consequences of a conviction are so stark in terms of disabling someone from participating in the, the economy and all of its consequences, disabling that same person who can't participate in the economy from being a provider, from owning a home, from obtaining housing, et cetera, et cetera. So we have plenty to do and we have people in the office who are very energetic and excited just the internal stuff too. You have an office where the culture was very, very different before we got here. We did not get here that long ago. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, put yourself in the position of someone trying to find experienced and capable supervisors to supervise your young and excited, mission-driven, idealistic, progressive lawyers you just hired out of law school. We're trying to supervise them, but the bench of supervisors is a bench of people who are at least a little comfortable in the prior administration, an administration that was diametrically opposed to what we're doing. Look, we knew the cops were against you. We knew they parked an ice cream truck in front of your office to make it seem like you were soft on crime. But you seem to indicate that your team's predecessors weren't exactly <laughs> uh, thrilled either. Can you tell me what that adjustment period was like as you moved from being a civil rights lawyer to district attorney? Sure, I can. By the way, I, you know, I think it's very important to point out that our campaign was endorsed by the African-American Officers Association. They are required to be a member of the dominant police union, the Fraternal Order of Police, which is their bargaining unit. That is a 100 uh, percent white male-led organization historically, Republican, endorsed Donald Trump twice. The subgroup of African-American officers are members of that group. They endorsed our campaign against the opposing campaign. And, you know, that is, I say that only to say that even within the current active police population, we have supporters. Uh, unfortunately, these unions are usually controlled by their retired membership as the one in Philadelphia is. And so, you know, the union doesn't need its active members at all because they have such a large number of retired members. So they create the impression that somehow all cops are not with Krasner or all cops are not with this DA's office. Actually, not true. We do have a lot of active officers who are supportive, who even voted for us. Um, it's just that that's not the impression the FOP would like you to take. Of course, you know, Philadelphia is a city where within our lifetimes, the police bombed its own residents. And obviously, you know, to get people to buy into even reforming a system of jurisprudence that would allow for something like that. I, I just wonder, like, what's the impediment for you to sell people on 
working within the system to change the system uh, to sell, especially black Philadelphians who continue to experience a disproportionate amount of uh, the violence that uh, the police department perpetuates. Philly is, in fact, the city that bombed itself. And that is certainly one noteworthy example of a pervasive culture that went on for a very long time. How do you tell people who have been subjected to that, that they should trust police or trust prosecutors? Well, one way that you do it is that when you find innocent people sitting in jail after 25 years, you get them out. And we have done that. We started a conviction integrity unit that at this point has released 20 people from jail on a total of 21 cases. One of them had two cases who should not have been convicted the way they were convicted. And the vast majority of them overwhelmingly are clearly and absolutely and without question innocent of the crimes with which they were charged in the first place. Why do you do that? Well, because you should, because it's what prosecutors are supposed to do. It's seeking justice. But it also is symbolically incredibly important in a city that bombed itself that you have a prosecutor or a prosecutor's office that's trying to make sure the system is accurate and it is fair to individuals. Uh, that restores trust. It gives them a reason at least to think about reconsidering whether they trust prosecutors when there's harm that happens on their block. The police have to do the same thing, you know, and there have been some moderate positive steps forward in Philadelphia. We obviously in the DA's office have no control over what the police department does. But in, in especially in the post-George Floyd America, we expect something different of our police commissioners and the mayors who put them in that position. What we expect is that they are also going to be progressive. They're going to be about integrity. They're going to be about trying to push back against systemic racism. They're going to do a lot of stuff that has not at all been what was done in Philly and was done in other places. Uh, you know, there was a big symbol here, though, of a change. And the symbol was that we took, you know, our Confederate general statue, the statue of Frank Rizzo, after it's having been in a prominent location for about 22 years, we removed it. You know, for your listeners who may not know, Frank Rizzo was a beat cop who became chief of police, who became the mayor. And as mayor, he was just like he was as chief of police. He was 100% about racism and brutality. That's what it was. Yeah. And selling the city's financial future out to the police and the police union. The removal, after years of controversy, of the statue of Frank Rizzo, the only mayor to have a statue close to City Hall, which is the locus of power in Philadelphia, was a huge deal. And it was actually done in the middle of the night when no one knew what was coming around the George Floyd protests and after the death of George Floyd. And for many people, that was a symbol, an important symbol, that the city recognizes there was something wrong with that entire era, that the era has to change. I think what we are going to see in Philly and elsewhere is we're going to see that people are encouraged and they're somewhat excited and they're turning out to vote when they have a choice of a progressive prosecutor. Um, and they're going to extend that. The next is going to be the mayors. They're going to expect their mayors and their police commissioners. They're going to expect their contracts with police to be different and to take us in a modern direction. And if they don't get it, the people who don't do it are going to get voted out. That, I think that is what's coming. If we look at the phenomenon of a grassroots movement for criminal justice reform, electing progressive prosecutors, what we see is that right now 10% of the United States has done exactly that. 
and often in the biggest jurisdictions, so that their impact is more than 10% because these are the jurisdictions that control mass incarceration to some extent. That all has happened in about a decade. Certainly the thinking around this has gone on much longer, but that surge all of those victories, those electoral victories in places, you know, in the largest criminal justice jurisdiction in the United States, Los Angeles, or even in Fairfax, Virginia, a place where you might not expect this to be happening. Like all of those victories are telling us something. And people who want to run for mayor or who are mayors better pay attention. Now, having said that, one of the problems we didn't used to have is when somebody said, I'm a progressive candidate and I'm here to change things. That was considered so politically unwise that it was probably true. Right. There's an awful lot of people who aren't progressive at all who want to put on their progressive pants and wear them throughout the election cycle because, frankly, they just want to get elected. I mean, you know, there it gets to be a little tricky because we could find ourselves soon enough with everybody saying the right things. I mean, in my election, even my opponent said the right things. He didn't believe one of them, but he said the right things. Um, right. So it will become important uh, that we we look at the people who are claiming these values, who are claiming that they will do certain things, and we look to see whether their life's history and their career story uh, confirms that. I mean, I think about Ellen Rosenblum up in Oregon, the attorney general of the state of Oregon, who after the Supreme Court verdict on non-unanimous jury verdicts, you know, she has the power to do something about that. You know, the fact that, you know, they're not applying that retroactively to people who have already been sentenced. It astounds me, to be honest. You know, I think we, we have to not, as people who are progressive or on the left, we have to not do what the left does so well, which is to eat our own. We have, mm. to, we have to acknowledge and accept that there is a variety of thought within a group of people who are trying to be modern, who are trying to do things that are scientific, who are trying to be decarceral. Uh, we may not all agree on certain things, and that's okay. But it's not okay to be, you know, a wolf in sheep's clothing. And, uh, you know, I can think of a prosecutor, I'm not going to name that person, who used to be a member of what is essentially the Progressive Prosecutors Club. And then when everybody saw what that prosecutor was actually doing, was uninvited. You know, there are some people who have to be thrown out. I think that the, one of the ways that we can really move forward is to recognize that often the law, when it comes to justice in the United States is a floor, but it's not the ceiling. Even where the law provides these sort of minimal protections, these minimal kind of due process protections, often prosecutors have discretion to require more. You know, we can make decisions about whether a completely bare bones case that is just probable cause, but nothing more is good enough to bring, or we want something that, that gets us closer to proof beyond a reasonable doubt before we even charge it. Even in a cash bail system, we can make decisions about whether we're going to try to simulate something else. We might succeed, we might fail. But those are things that we can try to do. And we can also make decisions on things that are categorical, like there are certain things I'm just not going to charge. There are mandatories I'm just not going to pursue because I think judges should actually have the discretion to do what we elected them to do, which is to make decisions about individuals in individual cases rather than have some you know, legislator who came up with something political and knows nothing of the field control them and, and put handcuffs on them. Okay, we're going to take one more short break. But when we come back, one thing that's contributed to mass incarceration in America is sentencing guidelines. 
which can include things like mandatory minimums for drug offenses or disproportionate sentences for possession of crack rather than powder cocaine. I'll ask Larry Krasner what a district attorney can do about this and what one can't after the break. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. I mean, we're talking about sentencing guidelines here, and this is something I feel like it's one of those things that we as Americans just kind of accept. Like, okay, you know, there's a three strikes law and there's the crack cocaine disparity, which thankfully the Biden administration is now endorsing legislation to fix. What is the power of a district attorney to to fix that? Let me just digress for one second to tell you how stupid a lot of these sentencing guidelines are. By all means, please. You know, the history (laughs) of sentencing guidelines in Pennsylvania was that people thought consistency was nice and they thought that there was some inconsistency. Some, you know, very rural counties were given out different sentences than some very urban counties. And, you know, the types of offenses were quite different. You might only have one homicide in a decade in a particular county as opposed to a much larger number of homicides in either Pittsburgh or in Philadelphia. But for some reason, you know, this should all be consistent because consistency is nice. So they did not come up with a system of sentencing guidelines that was based upon criminological data or recidivism statistics or anything else that might shed light. What they did is they averaged it. And by averaging numbers across the state, looking at sentences judges had given out, guess what? This drives up the sentences you're supposed to give in the big city, and it drives down the sentences you're supposed to give in the smaller locations. The populations are in the big cities. The large number of cases are in the big cities. It became this mindless mechanism for driving up sentences in the big cities. Only much, much, much later was there any, anything other than, you know, a bunch of people sitting around a table telling what their gut was for what a sentence should be and tying the hands of judges. 
Very harmful stuff, very wasteful. The good news is that the United States Supreme Court, a lot of the other courts, and in general legislatures have shied away a little bit from mandatory sentencing, mm-hmm. and they have taken guidelines and made them so that judges, if they have reasons, don't have to follow them. So they're kind of reintroducing a certain level of discretion uh, in there. It's not enough. There always should have been more discretion. That's why we have judges, so that they can exercise individual discretion. So what can I do? Well, number one, in many instances, I don't have to pursue a mandatory, so I don't. Uh, In some instances, we have to make a charging decision about whether we're going to pursue a particular charge that has a drastic effect on the sentencing guidelines. And if we think it's unjust and unfair to pursue that charge because it calls for some kind of ridiculously high inappropriate sentence, then we can choose not to bring the higher charge and we can bring the lower charge. Uh, You know, we also can go to court and we can make recommendations and those recommendations can be, yo judge, we don't think these guidelines are appropriate. This is a much more sympathetic individual or maybe a much less sympathetic individual. And these guidelines are are too low and you should be giving a more serious sentence because this is, you know, terrible, predatory, heinous crime in which some stupid averaging equation has come up with a sentence that's too low. Occasionally we do that as well. You know, I mean, we are strong believers in individual justice and that means giving judges discretion and trying to get all the information you can and trying to be as fair as you possibly can. I don't think sentencing guidelines helped at all. I don't think mandatory sentences helped at all. I think that there are obviously some inconsistencies when you give more discretion to judges to make their own decisions, but I would rather have some inconsistency than have a system that is predictably and consistently unjust, which is what we have with these three strikes laws, these mandatory sentencing laws, and a lot of the sentencing guidelines provisions that are completely unscientific. I know one of the things that you ran on in 2017 was removing as many or all youth from the incarceral system in Philadelphia. To date, that hasn't really happened. I know there's still, at the time that we're speaking, 28 kids currently in adult jails in Philadelphia. What has been the impediment for you uh, in terms of getting that done? So the, you know, the real impediment there has been the city. Uh, One of my first assistants is a guy named Robert Listenby, who was Barack Obama's chief of juvenile justice for the United States of America in Obama's second term. That is one of my first assistants. His entire career has been dedicated to juvenile justice. So very early in our administration, we went to the city and we said, look, you have this number of juveniles who are being held separately, but still held in an adult facility. We don't want them there. We want them out. And we got a lot of resistance from the city, some of it coming from people who do corrections involving juveniles that boil down to these are more serious cases. These are, in many cases, more dangerous individuals. They've been accused of first-degree rape, or they've been accused of homicide, or they've been accused of shootings. We don't want to mix them with the other kids. And, uh, you know, some of the corrections officers are afraid. They may get harmed by these people, blah, blah, blah. It was all that kind of stuff. You know, we reminded them that the federal government actually has passed a law which um, is directed at getting all juveniles out of adult facilities and into juvenile facilities. And uh, we pushed and pushed and pushed. And basically, the city's position was no. What's happening right now is that as the city continues to do this, the city is losing money. There was incentivization of getting juveniles back into juvenile custody um, that was incentivized by federal grants, federal money coming through. The city's not getting that money because 
they continue to hold a relatively small number of juveniles in adult custody. So it is sadly something that is beyond our control, but it's something, uh, it's an area in which we continue to advocate for improvement. You have this long career as a civil rights attorney in the city. Can you tell us a little bit, especially for those listeners who are unfamiliar with you, what kind of past did you come from and, and, and why did you, I guess, in a manner of speaking, switch sides? Oh, I never switched sides, um, but I'm happy to answer your question. So my legal career was primarily doing criminal defense work. I came out of law school. And when I came out, I applied both to prosecutor's offices and to public defender's offices. This is 1987. Uh, did a lot of interviews, had offers from both sides. But ultimately, at that time, in that culture, I was just much more comfortable with the public defender's uh, who seemed to share my values and seemed to have a sense of humor, you know, I was much more comfortable. And so I became a public defender in Philadelphia for three years in the county system, tried a lot of cases. And then I became a federal public defender doing nothing but federal cases for broke people. Uh, and then I set up my own law office. It's a, it's a whole story about how Mayor Good appointed me to be on a commission to investigate what was effectively a police riot against HIV and AIDS activists. I ended up as a third year attorney on this blue ribbon panel that did this investigation of this particular incident. And I realized during that process that while I loved, you know, criminal defense, that I wanted to be able to do civil rights cases as well, uh, because I had such a deep affection for protesters and activists and, and the important work that they do. And Philly was a place where they just kept getting arrested for no good reason and prosecuted. So the next 25 years of my career were spent with a combination criminal defense work at every level. We're talking underage drinking. We're talking triple murders. Right. I came to the end of that 30-year cycle watching another DA's race that was gearing up, and it was the usual suspects who were running. They were not serious about reform. They were using a lot of the old language, um, and to some extent, I just couldn't take it. Mm. I had watched this slow-motion car crash in courtrooms for 30 years. And I was in court. I was, I was a trial lawyer. So I was very busy in court. I was in court four to five days a week. I wasn't just seeing what happened in my cases. I was seeing what happened in all the other cases that you watch when you sit in a criminal courtroom. And I truly considered it to be a situation where I had achieved a lot of justice for individuals. But all of that was a drop in the bucket. And the bucket was full of injustice. And what we were seeing was a system that got worse every single year that I was grinding away with my individual clients. I, you know, I felt I was 56 and I just kind of felt like I hadn't achieved any kind of sweeping change, that this was going to be my career. And it wasn't enough. I felt like if nothing else, maybe I could start a conversation by speaking a little truth to power, as the activists like to say. And lo and behold, it turned out the voters liked the truth. You've been characterized often as a radical. I saw that a lot in the articles that were, I guess, concern trolling about your potential doom in this primary that you ended up winning by more than 30 points. What do you think of that label, particularly within the context of what you're trying to accomplish? I don't think there's anything wrong with being a radical. The word refers to going to the root of what the situation is and trying to fix it. We have a very broken system. But I do I think it's accurate? No, I don't actually think it's accurate. You know, this terrible radical voter for Joe Biden. Woohoo. <clears throat> I mean, to me, that's a bunch of nonsense, but even more a bunch of nonsense when you look at the history of criminal justice and what you see is that what I'm talking about, what we're talking about, in many ways resembles the levels of incarceration that existed for decades, decades during the 20th century. The radical experiment 
in my mind, was mass incarceration. It was, you know, the venomous approach of Richard Nixon, the war on drugs, everything that came after this essentially cloaked effort to go after anti-war protesters and to go after black people, which is exactly what it was. For me, that's the radical experiment. When you go from X number of people in jail to 5X people in jail within a few decades, what's so radical about trying to go back to where we were in the first place? Obviously, mass incarceration has been a complete failure and a catastrophe for the country. You know, I think the real radicals here are the ones who are so smitten with the idea that nobody should be on the sidewalk, everybody should be in a jail cell. A lot of people in this country think that violent crime stems from I guess, some kind of pathology within impoverished or underserved neighborhoods, as opposed to some kind of systemic issues. And I feel like what you're trying to accomplish, you seem to be getting down to the root causes of this stuff. Are you trying to fix a system that's inherently broken or in a way kind of trying to hold it together and use it to the extent that you can for good? Well, I guess I don't know how to answer that question because I'm not sure what's the difference between trying to hold together and improve an imperfect system and trying to fix it? Um, I used to work on cars when I was a kid. I was uh, kind of a shade tree mechanic with my best buddy. We used to fix up cars, tune them up, change the clutch, Mm -hmm. do the brakes, all that kind of stuff. And I grew up kind of broken. If we had a car, it was a beat ass car. And it was a a car that needed scotch tape and it needed uh, band-aids and it needed rubber bands and paper clips to keep it together. And, um, you know, and that's what we did. Uh, I can think of one car in particular that I bought actually for $200 and we got 25,000 miles out of it. You know, sometimes you take what you got, you take that hoopty and you try to keep it together and get it down the road because they haven't finished designing the Tesla. And when you get there, you get the Tesla. I mean, I w- I'm waiting for the Tesla. That's what we need. I'm waiting for a revolution in how the criminal justice system is done in the United States. But in the meantime, there are real people and there are real lives that are affected. And those people got to get down the road. And so it's a little bit of both. You know, it's a little bit of, of trying to get this messed up hoopty down the road. Uh, but we're doing so with the hope that it's going to chug its last little little bit of gasoline as it rolls into the parking lot of the a Tesla dealership. <laughs> America is a beat up hoopty. Yeah. I, honestly, I, I'm a little bit in awe of the, the challenge that you face because it's, it's really something. How do you get up in the morning <laughs> knowing that this is waiting for you? Uh, you know, I have to say, I, I think that it's really interesting to hear you say that because I think that one of the biggest challenges that we face as uh, technicians for a movement, and that's what prosecutors are. We're not the movement. We don't lead the movement, but we are technicians for it. One of the biggest challenges we face is that people believe it's impossible. You know, the system has convinced them that it's impossible. You have to be truly extraordinary. You have to be exceptional. No, you don't. You really don't. You know, there there was a docu-series that was done about our office called uh, Philly DA by a couple of local Philly filmmakers. It was their idea. I had zero editorial control, obviously made no dollars off of it, but we allowed it. And we allowed it partly because I really wanted people to see whether we sunk or we kept swimming. And I wanted them to see, we're just people. The notion that you're so excluded from politics that you can't win is untrue. My life certainly proves that. It is untrue and it is exactly 
what mainstream politicians want you to believe. They want you to believe that they're the only ones with the keys to the kingdom. They're the only ones who can crack the code. Turns out that since most people hate politicians, when they have someone who's not a politician and is actually genuine and is coming to an election in a creative way, that may actually be a very, very strong candidate, right? Well, the same is true when it comes to getting inside of a monolithic, uh, scary, misguided system like the criminal justice system. It's actually not that hard to change things. You're not going to succeed in everything, but you can be an ordinary person and you can win an election. You can be an ordinary person. You can get inside of a monster like this and you can make some real improvements with it. And you can also fail and get up the next day and keep trying. You know, that's kind of what I wanted to see come out of that. And, you know, coincidentally and separately, I was working on a book while that docuseries was being done that covers something very different. The docuseries covers our time in office. The, the book actually just talks about the campaign with all kinds of flashbacks to my career and basically the lessons that came out of growing up a broke kid and, and being a public defender and being up against a judge who basically was Satan. You know, those like stories that just stuck with me that really were formative and how I thought about the whole thing. I wrote that book deliberately. So it was friendly to a smart high school student because I think people need to understand this needs to be demystified. Ordinary people can do things. They can achieve things. We do get to choose the future. Yeah. And I've started that book. It's called For the People. And I just want to thank you, Larry Krasner. I really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you. It was wonderful talking. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikas. Our editor is Amy Drostovska. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder, and Liz Kelly Nelson is the VP of audio at Vox. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we can improve. If you have ideas for future guests or topics, email us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends, family, your yoga teacher, your imam, your rabbi, your pastor, whomever. And be sure to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. Then join us again on Monday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.